Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day, Annie, you're back. Yeah, I'm back. And Kim didn't try and shepherd you out of the door? (laughs) (laughs) I think she pushed me in here. (laughs) (laughs) We've had a pretty interesting week when it comes to our own work, haven't we? We've been all over the place, which has been exciting. But we've got some fascinating cases today, and we're going to look particularly at when a serious incident happens and WorkSafe arrive as a major topic, what should you do? Yeah, and practical what, advice. Yeah, what should you not do? And I guess because at the moment we've got about six to eight prosecutions or pre-prosecutions running where WorkSafe have run the same routine each time yeah. of trying to build friendships and relationships even though they're in the spectre about to prosecute you, there is some things that have happened that have made our life in defending people much harder. Yeah, and it's something people don't think about because you don't think about how to deal with WorkSafe unless you get a serious Yeah, incident. and they're a regulator. They're essentially regulators. Mm-hmm. So if they ask you something, there is a sense that you must comply. Yeah. And across different states and territories, that level of compliance varies. But I want everyone to remember now, and we'll talk about it more, when someone has been seriously injured or died in your workplace, the people who are close to them should not be talking to anyone. They should be healing and if they are spoken to by WorkSafe, they disclose things which provide a pathway for prosecution of information WorkSafe could never find out about. So we'll talk about how to manage that, but at the same time to be respectful of who WorkSafe are because they actually have a really important job, which is to prevent injuries and deaths, and part of the way they do that is through a prosecutorial process. So we're going to spend quite a bit of time on that, and we've got some fascinating cases about bad language and what it means in the workplace and we'll also spend a little bit of time around that to try and a put out put the warnings up as to when you condone bad behavior what is the safety message that you're sending and how can you manage people and the answer is not easily but when someone goes a bit further it becomes abusive or intimidatory the world changes a bit so we'll deal with those cases just before we deal with um main topic but let's just jump into australian offshore solutions which is the enterprise Green case. Not a surprising case in its outcome. It's kind of shocking that it exists. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's one of those cases where an enterprise agreement is put up by an employer that's voted upon by people who don't actually fall under the enterprise agreement. Yeah. So they had two enterprise agreements in this case and every single employee who voted it up were permanent employees. But the nature of the enterprise agreements were to address casual employment and the coverage clause made that very clear. Yeah. And that's a, it's very common and there are some old industrial relations consultants floating around who still think it's very clever to contrive a voting group for an enterprise agreement. Can I just say to you that died around about 10 years ago and two years ago there is a major case that absolutely beat one of those consultants up and the behaviour that occurred. Now you must have a voting group that meets the classification group within the enterprise agreement. Not one classification. No, it has to be reflective. Of reflective of it, and it has to be the final group. Now there is some contrivance and management you can achieve about that in a commissioning stage, pre-full production. So when you look at a commissioning of a new plan, for instance, there's usually three stages, which is commissioning phase. There is engagement stage where you are starting to get the product lines together and you have a full crew, and then you have final exploitation stage. Now, the time to actually prepare a greenfields or a new enterprise agreement is when you have a profile of the engagement stage, not the commissioning stage. Now, that can be carefully selected people. What it can't be is people who are actually paid 
$200 more a week, so they do. Another favourite old industrial relations strategy. What it involves is actually being a good person and having good relationships and employing good people. And then it works and the Commission has no trouble with it. And I think Nina and I have done half a dozen enterprise agreements where we've had three people voting because it represented the three major classifications, eight people voting where at that engagement stage where the Commission could go, now this is truly reflective of what the business is and at this stage, given the financial information it's provided, it's where it's going to be for a while, okay? But please dodge the dodgy people who try and give this smart-ass advice to say you can sneak this through because fair work are watching. Yeah, and the rules, with the changes in the genuine, uh, what is it, the genuine agreement principles, yes. the bargaining principles, they're even stricter on it. So it's just going to unravel and cost you heaps of money and waste of time. Yeah, and look, our first rule in business is be honest and good. You know, that's two, actually. I, we, we try to espouse it. Yeah, but I'm serious about it. I mean, if you want to maintain relationships with employments, don't try and do sleight-of-hand tricks to get what you want because it always <coughs> unravels and it always introduces unions in who start to industrialise your sleight-of-hand. And everyone looks back and goes, yeah, that was cheeky, that was mischievous, and then you don't have any goodwill. So it's it's sort of smart for the three-year period in money. It's bad for production and margin. It's dumb. Yeah. Anyway, that's enough of me raving about that. Let's get <laughs> on to a crocodile attack. Yeah. <laughs> now, the Department of Defence landed lent a boat for a couple of guys to go and have a swim. Yeah. Well, okay. I think <laughs> you need to give more context, I think. Am I cutting, so, am I, am I cutting it a bit short yeah. here? I want to get to the crocodile attack. Can you just give the boat? So the soldiers were in Darwin and they were removing a plane, I think, from the water. And then as part of that exercise, they agreed for two soldiers to borrow a boat to go fishing. That was the permission they gave. Then the soldiers decided to go swimming in crocodile-fested waters and got viciously attacked by a crocodile. You can assume. assume They're okay. They were seriously injured, but they're okay. And um, You can only hope they're not captains and majors, (laughs) can't you? Because anyone who leads someone to go swimming in crocodile-infested waters is not the person you want defending Australia. Yeah, that's crazy. But that's the main point, that there's this assumption that if there's something that's seriously dangerous, it should be obvious to an employee not to expose themselves to that danger. And in in the charges that have been laid, they've said that's not enough. I think they've brought reckless endangerment charges for it because there was no risk assessment done, no training, nothing for them directing employees not to go into the dangerous waters. And although it's obvious, your obligation extends to dealing with stupid people. Well, funnily enough, that Chief Justice Spiegelman, who used to be head of the Court of Appeal in New South Wales, once during an appeal around safety, looked at the council who was making an argument and said, isn't safety law about stopping stupid people doing <laughs> stupid things? <laughs> and I, it sort of, I, I sat there and listened to it and thought, I will never forget that quote because <laughs> that's really what safety law is about. All right, working from home, next case. I know we've got a oh, pay yeah, We've fat. got a reminder. Oh, we've got a, you, yeah. you do the reminder. And yeah, well, I, I hope everyone knows this now, but paid family and domestic violence leave is now in effect for small businesses as well. For other businesses, it was in effect from February. But now for anyone with less than 15 employees, all of your employees, whether casual, full-time, part-time, are entitled to 10 days of paid family and domestic violence leave per year. Okay, pretty good. We nailed that. Let's just jump, jump on the next <laughs> case, okay? So... <laughs> Interesting case once again. Very topical. Very topical. This is a person who said it was a workplace right to work from home and brought a general protections claim because the employer didn't approve working from home. Mm. Contract gave the place for work as the office. Yep. 
and the Federal Circuit and Family Court decided that well, there is no workplace right called working from home. Yeah, because there's nothing in our contract. Yeah, and there's nothing in national employment yeah, standards no, or anywhere else, no and therefore there's no workplace right to do it. Yeah. Now, I thought that was pretty obvious, but... It's clearly not it's to most clear, people. It's clearly not to most people. What I want to remind people is your contract creates what is the obligation at work, but if over a period of time you condone working from home post-COVID, and it doesn't have clarity, and a person chooses to work four days a week from home, Cosmer and Qantas, a high court decision, says you've now, by condemnation, changed the nature of the common law contract, and therefore it doesn't matter what it says. Can you hear the alarm bell starting to ring, everybody? You've got national employment standards that say when somebody can apply for workplace flexibility. If you had a policy that said from time to time a person may be able to work from home but it doesn't interfere with their contractual relationships if you've got that clause in a contract. There's some, there's some protections that you have, but you do have a statutory protection of saying, no, national employment stands, you want flexible work for carers responsible, we'll give it to you. Your contract says <coughs> where work is, but if you allow people over a period of time to drift into this abyss of being able to work whenever they want to from whenever they feel like it, I'm sorry that after a period of time that will, this case will not be right because the common law contracts will create a workplace right. So this is, the Holmes case is a fascinating case because don't think it's been agitated very carefully and not with a view to Cosmo and Qantas. But in the next year or so, we are going to start seeing working from home being agitated as an implied term of contract based on Cosmo and Qantas and those people are going to win. Yeah, and like Andrew said, the way to get around that is just making sure if you are going to permit working from home, that you build boundaries and structure around it. If you do that, then you'll be fine. Yeah. All right, and the way to do that is either put in the contract that working from home from time to time with the consent of the employee does not vary the location and place of the contract yeah. or building an appropriate policy about flexible work, which, again, makes it a discretion, yeah, but, doesn't, that discretion. but doesn't imply a term into the contract and doesn't over a period of time alter the contract of the employee, one or both but not neither, okay? <laughs> All right, let's talk about profanity. <laughs> I've never even, I, I like swearing. It's so much It's so much bolder than profanity. Profanity almost sounds a Christian method of swearing, doesn't it? Anyway, <laughs> but <laughs> whatever it is, <laughs> this is winter in the Department of Correctional Services. Nobody can pretend that when you're looking after prisoners that you're walking around saying, would you please move over there? Could you come towards me? Thank you. What it does, it builds an incredibly robust environment where the people that you're managing are swearing at you all the time and swearing amongst themselves. And the inevitability is that that behaviour will percolate up. In this case, it percolated up in a fairly substantive way where correctional officers regularly swore and swore at each other and swore at other people. And the issue was when one of the person called their manager a prick, the person strangely took offence and sought to terminate the employment on that behalf. Yeah, and they did all these other things, like they transferred him out, they were threatening to cut his pay as well, all this yeah. other stuff first, yeah. And what the court said was not surprising, which is, well, you condone it. It's part of the workplace. Now, I want you to notice what the language is. Calling someone a prick in a prison context is pretty low-level swearing, can I say, after doing a bit of criminal law as a young man. <laughs> what I was called, and that was by other counsel, let alone by prisoners, was pretty unpleasant. So... This is low-level swearing or profanity in an environment where high-level swearing was tolerated and all the time yeah. and condoned. 
So the question is, should the person be terminated? The answer is it would be a valid reason to terminate a person for this, but it's clearly not fair given the fact that you've condoned it on a regular basis. Mm. So can you see, we're going to talk about a couple of other cases which aren't going to come up, I don't think, but what I want to raise with you is when you condone bad behaviour, you create an unsafe workplace, okay? When you look at the Ambulance Victoria report into their condemnation of incivility, rudeness and profanity, the report was scathing about a culture that was permitted to exist that placed employees at risk and that these were clear psychological hazards. So you've got a very detailed report of a very large organisation saying this is unsafe, it's dangerous, it's harming people. Then you go back to cases like Graham and New South Wales trains where a safety manager in New South Wales trains, uh, sorry, a safety employee, not a safety manager, raised New South Wales trains their real concern around safety issues and wasn't heard and end up telling his manager, when he was talking about to get fact, I'll excuse that in advance, that wasn't <coughs> my language. And that wasn't profanity, that was a lot worse. And the commissioner, I think it was the commissioner or a judge involved, said nobody tells their manager to get fucked and doesn't expect to lose their job. And went on to say, but he's had a 22-year unblemished history. Swearing was common in the workplace. This was a level of frustration from a safety person not being heard about safety. Yeah. When you put those things together, actually it's very unfair and they reinstated it. Yeah, context is everything. Yeah, but once again, this issue of safety was agitated in the case. You have condemnation at one level, which means you can't terminate a person, and at the next level, you've got the employer creating an unsafe place of work, which make, means the unsafe comment of the employee is nothing compared to the unsafe behaviour of the employer, and that's the balance when you look at unfair termination. And then you go to the last case that I wanted to talk about, um, which was homes and um, Australian carers. No sort of pain Australian carers. I've gone to the wrong case. I've got to turn over the chart here. I want to thank Tom for appearing all these cases, which is Power and Lindens. Okay. This was a guy who said something which wasn't just swearing, it was abusive and offensive. So it took the next level. Yeah. It was in a place where swearing was commonplace. This is in sales rep, okay, and where the type, um, I won't criticise sales reps, <laughs> although it is my, my pension to do it from time to time, but it's an environment where the looseness of language and behaviours is very common. And what the court said in this case is, look, this was said in the context of some really poor behaviour, but it wouldn't matter if someone else had also said this. The nature of this behaviour stepped well past what is contextually behaviour that can be, which is a little unsafe. This makes things very unsafe because the nature of the language was deeply offensive and designed to hurt and humiliate the person. And at that stage, it doesn't matter that behaviour like this has been condoned in the past. This incident in itself is unsafe and it must be dealt with and it will trump condemnation. So I think the lessons I want to grab, and we spent a lot of time, sorry about that, but <laughs> is to say swearing in the workplace, it happens here from time to time. It's never done here as an offensive part. We should probably be better at it, and I'm one of the worst people in it, so I'm going to get better. But understand as you swear, you don't know who the recipient is or whether it's something they can hear yeah. and they can feel comfortable with. If you can donate, you know you're making your work safe a little bit unsafe, so stop it. But when someone moves beyond me saying, geez, I'm really effing tired, to being abusive, offensive, intending to humiliate or hurt, you've got actions which are clear misconduct which step above condemnation, which are unsafe and should be dealt with quite aggressively to stop. Okay, let's move on to our major topic. Is work safe my friend? Yeah, is work safe <laughs> my friend? Work safe 
is a regulator, it's a statutory authority, its job is important and without it we'd have a lot more deaths and injuries in workplaces. Oh, yeah. So let's, let's be clear about it. Yeah. When an incident occurs in your workplace when someone's seriously injured or has died, I want you to think about it in these terms. For the person who has been injured, if it's injury, for the family, for the person seriously injured or the person who's died, and for the people who were exposed to that, their life has changed dramatically. Yeah. And they must be first in your mind, not just the injured person, but that cohort of people, which includes supervisors and people working with them. They must be protected, okay? That's got to be your mind place. The second mind place has got to be, what is it that I need to do to prevent prosecution of employees and your workplace? Because actually your job as an employer is make sure you do protect the employer. Now, in between that is ensuring the place is safe after the incident so nobody is hurt. When WorkSafe come in after an incident, it is not your usual WorkSafe person. It is an inspector whose job it is to identify are there any other risks which need notices put upon and can I prosecute? And they'll put a brief together which goes to their legal team and eight to 12 months later in any state or jurisdiction, if it's signed off by them, you're likely to get an indictment or an information or a complaint around it. The point for Nina and I as we're presently wrestling with a number of cases we have is People feel an obligation because they're hurting to speak up immediately. And disclose everything, even when it's not facts, like guesses, hypothesis about what could have occurred. Comments like, I only spoke to the owner two weeks ago and said this very sort of thing was going to happen. Yeah, or I think this is what happened. He's super unsafe. He's always done this. People are filled with guilt. They're filled with second thoughts. And as they speak to WorkSafe, and these are invariably the people who are most vulnerable, who should have actually been sent home, their family around them, they should have been providing counselling services. Yeah. It should have been a person without detailed knowledge of what occurs, like an operations manager yeah. who is senior, comfortable with dealing with the regulator, who assists WorkSafe, not hinders them, and will respond to all their requests where lawfully made in a time which allows some reflection and some advice. So I guess the really big thing I want to say to all employers is, in Victoria, there is no obligation for any person to say anything besides their name and address. I'm not asking you to do that, by the way. But what you can do and what you ought to be saying to them is, look, look, happy to help you. This is where it occurred. This is the nature of the document that we've created around the incident. Remember, incident reports and these should not be root cause-based and descriptive of causation. They should be reflective of only fact. Yeah. Otherwise, you're hanging yourself because under... Yeah, we've had that happen. <laughs> yeah, under, under the notices that can be issued in Victoria and every other state and jurisdiction, you're entitled to call for those. Yeah. And at that stage, form bond and relationship with WorkSafe so that that relationship is ongoing. It should not be a supervisor. It definitely shouldn't be the OHS manager who's been driven crazy by the organisation's no, failure yeah, to actually respond to what they want, who has the whole knowledge of failure in the organisation, is angry, hurt and responsible and does disclose everything. It must be somebody who is one step removed from what occurred yeah. and we must look after the people who observed and were close to it. And that means getting them off-site, getting them looked after, with proper trauma-based counsellors, putting them around their family, ensuring they feel safe and ensuring their return to work. In in our experience, when we look at the incidents we've got, we've got specialist counsellors dealing with a number of the people who've been witnesses or decision-makers that have led to injury or death who are incredibly damaged by it. Yeah, of course. WorkSafe is a regulator. It's a policeman, okay? It is an educator. When it comes to incidents, it's definitely a policeman, okay? 
Yeah. And remember where your first duty lies. Look after the person who is most vulnerable. Make the place safe. And then have a crisis strategy around what you're going to do and who will take charge and manage the regulator. Because if you don't do it, the cat's going to be out of the bag. WorkSafe can only see what they can see. Yeah, so I think to be clear, Al, what we're trying to say is you definitely should cooperate with WorkSafe. You, the obligation is you cannot hinder, but what that cooperation entails means limiting what information they have because anything you say will they're able to use. And yeah. we've had cases, actual cases, where someone has been very distressed by the events and said things out of emotion and that's then formed evidence against them later. Yeah, and, and it's, opened the, it's opened the door to an inquiry that WorkSafe yeah. could never know about. So as Nina said, yeah. it's not about not cooperating. You must cooperate. It's not about hindering or retracting <laughs> in any way. That's unlawful. But WorkSafe are a set of eyes. They can see what they can see, just like police are a set of eyes and the fatality police will be there as well. So you're not, not allowing them to see and you're no. not preventing them from asking. And you're not lying to them, to be clear. Like, yeah, you're, you're being honest with them. But the fact is, if you ask a distressed person, they will say things that WorkSafe and police size couldn't see or know about, like this was a discussion we had at a board level only four weeks ago where we said this was definitely going to happen. Yeah. Now, they wouldn't know about that, but that is the backbone of a serious prosecution potentially reckless and they potentially go to jail. Yeah, so stick so, to facts. Stick to facts, yeah. build a crisis management plan which allocates a person who is the responsible person, cooperate, form a relationship with WorkSafe, but remember it's their eyes and ears that are hearing and seeing and the things that you know are institutional knowledge that create risk. If no one says it, they don't know it. Yeah. But if you put vulnerable people in front of them, they will know it. Yeah. And just one thing before we move on is I get this question a lot. Sometimes WorkSafe will offer free resources in the form of consultants to audit your whole system. And although those services are highly confidential, if you take them up, it means WorkSafe's got the knowledge that you are doing that and they can make requests for yeah. that, so that's legal, documentation. That's why legal profession, can I just say that the people who are performing at that level are quite skilled people, but they're not forensic people, the people that we use. They provide the higher order analysis of risk, which is underprivileged for which WorkSafe can't get a copy. That's probably enough because it's a starter, what I yeah. want to get going, which is please have a crisis management system and process. Please focus on those who are most likely to be hurt. Please make the place safe as quickly as possible so nobody else can be hurt. And then make sure that you're quarantining the nature of the inquiry to only what can be seen and heard. Yeah. In New South Wales and places like that, you'll get a 155 notice, which is a huge list of mm. pro forma questions. Please get some advice because yeah, many of those questions are irrelevant. The methods of answering them don't have to be, you know, it can be done in a manner which doesn't disclose risk, but they need thoughtful consideration, okay? Yeah, and maintain a respectful relationship with WorkSafe. After all of that, we do think you should do that because that can be the difference between being prosecuted and not. Yeah. All right. Case study. Off you go. Tom was angry that he was required to return to work in the office. His contract stated his place of work was the office. The flexible work policy had a discretionary right to the employer to permit flexible work but was otherwise only as permitted under the Fair Work Act, National Employment Standards. Tom's manager, Don, instructed Tom to return to work full-time at the office on the 2nd of August. He'd previously been working from home. He ignored requests to return to work. 
Don has since sent a letter making a lawful and reasonable direction. Tom wrote back and said the direction was unlawful, said it had caused him stress, and if he continued, he may have to take stress leave. Don directed Tom to attend work for a show cause as to why his employment should not be terminated for failing to comply with the lawful and reasonable direction. Prior to the letter, Don spoke to Tom, explained he was about to receive a letter, offered him EAP support, and inquired if There's he was There's an extra there that I'm putting. This was done late at night again. Can I say, when I type late at night, I don't use glasses. I don't know how that eye got there. I don't even know what it could mean. Sorry. Could provide him with professional help for the stress he was feeling. He explained the letter was a disciplinary letter, but said it is best that he read and then call him. When Tom read the letter, he went to see his doctor who put him on stress leave, not works compensation. Tom sent the doctor's medical certificate with an email that said... Dear Don, please don't try and contact me. Your behaviour towards me has caused me stress and now I suffer from a medical condition. Your instructions to me are unlawful and I'm not obliged to comply with them. My lawyer advised me that you have breached a workplace right and I can bring a general protections claim and my medical illness is compensable. Please confirm I'm not required to return to the office or the disciplinary meeting. Unless I receive that confirmation by return, I will instruct my lawyer to file the claim and see my doctor to go on workers' compensation. Regards, Tom. All right, can I just stop? In that email that um, Tom sent, he said, don't contact me any further. This is sort of free work with Ombudsman Liviano where they talked about what does a medical certificate mean. And one of the things a medical certificate doesn't say when they're unfit for work is they're not able to be contacted. Yeah. So that is a specific requirement. If they say that's the case, then there is some real problems. But if we go back, was it a lawful direction to return to work? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because you had the policy. Yeah. You had the contract. And he consulted with him and did all the reasonable steps when he was yeah. issuing the direction. So in some ways, Tom's in a bit of a corner here. Tom's backed himself into a corner because there is a process that exists. It's been done correctly and his refusal to attend work under the circumstances is unlawful refusal. Okay? Remember lawful and reasonable direction. First, is it lawful? Yes. Was it reasonable? The question of reasonable might hark back to that issue of what levels of condemnation exist in the past and whether other people were able to work from home. There could be other things that go yeah. into the reason, but on its face, it's a fair direction. Two, can Tom bring a successful general protections claim and respect the direction to return to work? And what we found from Holmes' case is no. Yeah. There is no workplace right that he enjoys that has been abrogated by Don. And also the termination would be for failure to comply with the lawful and reasonable direction. It's not to do with his stress leave or him taking time off work. So there's no protected action. Yes, or not coming to, coming to work. Yeah. It's, it's really he's been given a lawful, reasonable direction. And I guess you hear Nina and I talk about lawful and reasonable directions. And what we're trying to say in that process is when you're going along a path of disciplining someone, you must identify what are the actions you're allowed to lawfully take and is it reasonable to do it and then to put those in writing and describe them as lawful and reasonable directions and explain what the impact of not complying with a lawful yeah, and reasonable direction. You have to do that, otherwise it's not. Yeah, otherwise Yeah, otherwise it's like turning up to a stop sign and there being no lawful regulation in existence that you can't just drive straight through it. Yeah. Does that make sense? But so we all know there is three and I know because I keep losing points. It is three points you lose when you go through a stop sign. Yeah. It's up to Nine points if you're talking on your phone at the time. Anyway, that's a different issue. Last question. How should Don proceed and what are the risks? Well, I think he should just get him to respond in writing, give him a bit extra time because he's clearly stressed at the moment. But he should give him that alternative, shouldn't he? Yeah. So the letter that Don should send is, he's been given the show cause letter, 
And what he should do is acknowledge the nature of the stress he's feeling, say, look, we're concerned. Offer support. Yeah, offer support, do all that sort of stuff. He's done that with the EAPO, which I don't know what that was. Tell us the name of the EAPO. That's right. But the important part about it is he then must say, look, understand that you've got a medical student stress. We normally do this within two days. We're happy to give you seven days in which to respond in writing in the absence of what you're either attending or responding in writing. We rely on the evidence we hold to make a decision in relation to any disciplinary proceeding, disciplinary action that would be taken. Very key words. Because once you've started a disciplinary process and a person goes on sick leave, it doesn't mean you can't continue it. No. What it means is if it is a discrete period of sick leave and it's not serious misconduct, you have to wait till they come back. But this is serious misconduct we're alleging. Therefore, you can proceed, but you must give reasonable time based on the medical evidence you hold in which to respond. So if Tom came back and said, no, I'm not medically able to respond, then we'd say, well, look, that's not what the certificate says. The certificate says you're not able to attend work, and Mm -hmm. on that basis we will expect a response. Now, he may go to the doctor at the corner, whose wife works there, and turn up the medical certificate that says he is unable to respond at this time. And at that stage, you get him independently medically assessed, which he wouldn't turn up to and breach the lawful and reasonable direction. It gets very dirty at that stage. But remember, a medical certificate doesn't say you can't speak to him. medical certificate doesn't say you can't send a letter to them. And a medical certificate doesn't say, unless there are specific words, that they're unable to respond to a letter when they're part of a disciplinary process. Yep. So there you go, guys. Cool. That's it for this week. It was fun. Yeah. Interesting. Thank so I've loved our meeting, And good to see you. And we'll Give see you next week. Up. Thumbs up, please. Cheers. Cheers.